Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Easy Conversations podcast, a podcast about having easy conversations, where we talk about mental health, adversity, spirituality, and societal issues. I'm your host, Furkan Dandia. In this week's eye-opening episode of Easy Conversations, I welcome an inspiring guest, Victoria Peltier. We delved into a relevant topic in society today, parenting through a child's gender transition. Victoria takes us on a journey through her experience as she navigates the uncharted waters of her child's gender transition. As a guest who brought vulnerability, Victoria shared her story authentically, offering listeners a glimpse into the challenge of this journey. In this conversation, Victoria discusses her approach and mindset through her child's transition. She opens up about the moments of uncertainty and the bond between her and her child as they've navigated this path. Using her experiences, Victoria paints a picture of some of the responsibilities parents have in these circumstances. Throughout the episode, Victoria candidly talks about the strategies she has utilized. While I have different views about this subject, I was curious to hear Victoria's approach. We also delved into the topic of diversity and explored the work Victoria has been doing to raise diversity and inclusiveness. Diversity, equity and inclusion or DEI in corporations and how it has been managed has been an interesting topic for me and I was curious to see Victoria's take. Victoria is a 20 plus year corporate executive and board director. Nicknamed the Turnaround Queen by former colleagues and employers, Victoria inspires and empowers our team and clients to change mindsets and drive growth in business, leadership, and culture. As someone who does not subscribe to the status quo, she is always ready to, for new challenges, becoming one of the youngest chief operating officers at the age of 24, a president by 35, and a CEO by age 41. As a prolific motivational and inspirational speaker, Victoria has delivered keynotes discussing the importance of personal branding and its impact on professional growth, being an empathetic leader in empowering employees, the power of DEI on corporate cultures, and building a life of resilience. Please check the show notes to find all the ways you can check out Victoria and her work. And please leave a review or a comments in the comment section after the end of the episode. Thank you. All right, Victoria, welcome to the Easy Conversations podcast. Thank you for joining me today or, or tonight in your case. I appreciate you taking the time and I'm super grateful for that. And I'm also very excited about what we're going to talk uh, about today. So, um, so yeah, but before we do get into that, I do want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself uh, and let the listeners know a little bit about who you are, what it is that you do, and where you're based. Uh, I know you've kind of moved around a lot in your life, but uh, yeah, I'll kind of hand it over to you. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for having me here t- today. I'm happy uh, to be chatting with you. So Victoria Peltier, I'm a lifelong B2B corporate executive, um, became an executive at a very early age, which is sort of defined and set me up from a career standpoint. Uh, in the world of um, predominantly professional services, uh, currently work for Accenture, although with plans on going back to being the C-suite executive versus consulting for them. 
Uh, I'm also uh, a side hustler slash entrepreneur. I've always kind of had something. I've built and bought businesses. Been a part of 18 mergers and acquisitions within the corporate um, environments as well as some I've bought for myself. Uh, I'm a keynote speaker and author and regular appear um, on a variety of media. Uh, I am a mom, uh, a spouse, a fitness fanatic, a foodie, and a wine lover. How's that? Yeah, no, that's great. And uh, yeah, thank you for sharing all that. Uh, I mean, you know, based on where you are today, uh, it hasn't been an easy road. And that's part of what we're going to talk about today. But starting with childhood, uh, you know, you've shared with me some of the adversity you've had to overcome throughout life. But let's maybe start at your early life and what that was like and how were yeah. you were able to navigate all that. Yeah, it. Um, I actually think that sort of the early years and lived experience that I had is what has informed um, a lot of my thinking and my drive and a lot of the resilience uh, that I think I've had. So I'm, I'm born to a drug addicted teenage mother who was exceptionally abusive to me um, from, you know, being pushed downstairs, um, not intentional, but a carelessness act. And I had a cigarette in my eye, wore a patch for months. So I went in and out of the child welfare system. However, I was very fortunate that um, Julie, my biological mother, had met uh, a couple and a woman in particular who often would take me during one of the episodes or shortly thereafter. And after a number of instances, she she went to Julie and asked to, uh, to take me away from her. They wanted to adopt me. Uh, and so I'm fortunate that I was, you know, adopted out of that situation, like so many um, that are not in the child welfare system. And then socioeconomically, however, was at the lower end of that. And my, my dad is secretary, my mom, uh, my, um, sorry, my dad a janitor, my mom is secretary. And so never went without food and clothing, but certainly there wasn't a lot um, left over for much else. So I started working very early. So it was, it was those things in particularly that made me determined to be better than biology or circumstance and a big part of where my drive from a career perspective came from. Right, right. And you know, you kind of often hear, and I've covered trauma on this podcast, and I've researched it quite a bit myself, but childhood trauma specifically can be debilitating uh, for, for young children, but then also making that transition from adolescence to adulthood. And, you know, it's easy to, to consider that as a barrier to be able to succeed in life. Uh, you can understand why. But what was it for you? Or, you know, I know you talk about resiliency, but often it takes some practical things and, and having a certain mindset to be able to work your way through that type of adversity, especially from early childhood. What was it like for you? Like, what are some practical things that you did specifically that made you who you are? I, I believe that resilience is a combination of a bit DNA um, but also that it's like a muscle and you can train it. And so for me, there's definitely some hard coding in my DNA around fight or flight. I'm a fighter. Um, so, you know, my ability to show up and continue to face adversity comes in part from that. But the other part is this learned resilience that I actually attribute my my adoptive mother and my my parents are those that raised me. And my mom would sit me down so many times. And I remember as a teenager, just kind of rolling my eyes. And I was like, mom, like, why do we have to do this and have this conversation? And she'd say like, Tori, we need to get to the root of 
why you're acting out or acting and feeling the way that you're feeling. And so she got me to really start to process and be incredibly self-aware and understand how the mo- emotions I was having, and many of which were fear-based from some of my early years, informed the way I showed up, whether it was in the poor choice of friends I had because I wanted to be surrounded by many to feel a sense of love and acceptance, uh, to fears of insecurity that prevented me from doing things that I wanted to. So she really taught me a lot about that. I actually don't even know that I, I realized that until I was more into my 20s and 30s when I started to be incredibly self-reflective, even me as a leader, why am I showing up the way that I am? And so meant looking pretty critically at the woman that stared back at me in the mirror and asking myself some questions, trying to gain deeper understanding, and then modeling the thinking, the actions, the behavior to get towards the goal or objective that I have. And then also giving myself permission to fail because we're all human and you know that's going to happen. And then just go through that cycle again when another obstacle or challenge comes in front of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, kind of talking about your, your current career, and obviously you mentioned that you, you kind of went into that leadership route or, or executive, into the executive roles at an early age. That, again comes with adversity, especially, um, you know, when you think about it, a lot of those executive roles are typically male dominated. And, you know, you shared parts of your story with me and also certain things about you as a person often can be considered to be marginalized or stigmatized. Are you able to share some of that and how you've been able to overcome those obstacles throughout your life? Yeah, I, uh, I think my focus around, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion comes from my experience where I've often felt or truly been the only in the room. And, you know, that comes from, um, you know, being the socioeconomically, you know, like being the only kid who couldn't go on like my high school field, like, you know, class trip or other trips to in the work world. When I be took my first executive role. I was chief, I was recruited to be the chief operating officer of a, pr- a private outsourcing organization. It was a fairly big stretch role for me. But at 24, I was two decades younger than any of the other executives at the table. I was the only woman um, around the table and the only member um, of the LGBT community. So I came out of my teens as bisexual and at I uh, met my my ex-wife at age 22. I'm now married to a man. Um, but, you know, in that instance, I felt like I was very much, you know, the the only. And so I, you know, spent a lot of my life now trying to advocate for others um, to improve diversity in the workplaces and creating better, you know, cultures where there's a sense of belonging within them. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I guess you know, at the age of 24 to be in that position, especially again, as a woman, why do you think you were able to get into that position? Again, you know, we've talked about resilience, but is there anything specific that you felt yourself that you brought to the table that you were able to do yourself that put you in that position? Well, transparently, I I did, you know, there was a lot of the boxes that I ticked in terms of them recruiting for that role. I had been leading large scale contact center operations and think this is the world of outsourcing 20 plus years ago. 
and so call center, outbound telemarketing and sales and service. And I'd been doing that for large financial institutions. And this outsourcing organization had large financial services clients, and it was primarily contact centers. So I ticked, you know, a lot of those boxes, but it was mostly my background had been predominantly like running operations. And this included not only operations, but technology and HR and sales and marketing and those elements as well. And so for the areas in which I had a skill gap or experience gap, I was able to, I'll call it storytell, but I don't mean in the sense of like fake it till you make it. I'm not a fan of that, except when it comes to confidence, but be able to draw the parallel for those people that were hiring me around the experience I'd had that could align to the areas in which I had, you know, maybe some of the functional leadership gaps, one, and two, talk a lot about how I build really great teams who complement the, the skills that I don't have and bringing, again, diversity of experience uh, mm-hmm. together. And the fake it till you make it, I said, I believe it when it comes to confidence. Uh, and so for me, although I felt a tremendous amount of insecurity and imposter syndrome stepping into that role, I very much showed up as this like confident person standing in front, you know, of those that were hiring me, uh, which I think um, sometimes confidence is mistaken for competence. And mm-hmm. um, in that case, I do. I had a lot of competence in the areas I knew well, could build a team around me for the areas I didn't. Um, but I did show up confidently. And I think it was all of those dimensions for the reason why they hired me. And then ultimately, you know, I performed and I built the right team and that kept me in the seat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And outside of confidence, you said you don't believe in the whole notion of fake it till you make it. Why is that? Well, people will see through the whatever BS you're spewing now. It's a lot, e- <laughs> a lot easier in this digital world to, you know, do your research and uh, and pick. But also, you need to take the, you know, if you're gonna, f- you're gonna attempt to fake it, whether it's around like skills or experience that you have. The reality is, once you get into the seat, you have to deliver. And, um, you know, in, in some, maybe it can make it a little bit longer or, um, you know, by faking it or they can learn it quite quickly. But um, the reality is, you know, if we want to be successful in business, in terms of relationships we, we build with customers, with clients and with our teams, we actually need to be trusted and authentic. Right. Right. And to your point, transparency is so crucial and that leads me to my next question, because you mentioned, you know, you had, you came out in your teens, especially at a time when probably further led to more stigmatization or, or even just standing out in, in a time where it was not common. What was that experience like and how were you able to kind of stick to what you believed in and, and to your own identity, I suppose? I um. I resisted, by the way, sort of coming out in part because I had learned that my biological mother, she went to jail um, at some point and she declared that she she had become a lesbian while she was in jail. And so I was almost determined I wasn't going to be anything like her. Um, But to, you know, trying to stick to who I was. And so recognition at 14 that I was attracted to both, you know, men and women. um, I came out, I will tell you, I'm exceptionally fortunate that um, my mother in particular was so liberal minded and supportive. Although I didn't, I didn't actually though tell her and not, not out of fear, but I think it's just because there weren't 
I, I grew up in Western Canada uh, and there weren't a lot of gay bars or whatnot. So there wasn't a, an, enough exposure around it. So I think had I ever actually had a girlfriend at that point, um, I probably would have told her. The advice when I came out, came out to her officially, uh, you know, after I got relocated to a much larger city with a very diverse population, including a very large queer community, um, I told her and she, I remember her saying to me, she's like, just remember, Tori, she said, women can be jerks too. So mm -hmm. I am exceptionally fortunate to have been so accepted. I've far too many stories here from those that don't, whether it's because the, from a cultural standpoint, religious standpoint, it's just not accepted by um, their families and those around them. So I am one of the lucky ones. And again, it's part of why I want to create a safe space for others. And so when I have two children and one of mine came out to me and it was almost like a non-event. I don't know if they wanted it to be more eventful, but it's like, okay, well, I'm going to support you. Well, you know, I, I gave birth to my two children while I was married to my ex-wife. And so it's like, well, you had two moms. So, um, and not everyone's that, that lucky, but, um, you know, smaller town, I was in a Catholic high school. So, you know, I had to be mindful of who I told what to at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, just because I mean, you had the same level of understanding and compassion from from your mother. You were able to pass that on to 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 your child, and that's something we've discussed offline. But do you mind opening up a little bit more about what that experience was like for you as a mother to hear your own child kind of expressing, especially right now in today's world, it's a little bit more accepted, but it's also coming with additional challenges, which I do want to explore with you further. Yeah. So I am, um, as I said, I had two children. My first, um, um, who's 23, um, a boy. My second was born a girl, Jordan, uh, who came out as queer uh, at around age 11 or 12. And just six months ago has said that um, they would like to transition to male. And so um, it's funny, I've had this conversation. I joke with Jordan. I'm like, at least you don't need to change your name because it can go I I either way. Yeah. And uh, so I remember when Jordan and I, you'll hear me use pronouns based upon how she identified at that time. So I might use she or he, he, him, or they, them now. Um, and so when Jordan came out to me at 11 and said, mom, you know, I think I like girls. I'm like, okay, you know, and like, let's talk about that. My advice was what was honestly at that point, just to be really open and fluid. I said, you're like, you mm -hmm. have, you're not even dated anyone. So, you know, be open, don't label it. Actually, that was my advice. There's no need to label it. I said, I'm going to support mm -hmm. you, which, whatever you decide. And so she ended up dating mostly girls. And at one point, she and her girlfriend decided and, you know, went to a party and they both ended up kissing a boy. And she came home. She's like, no, mom, pretty sure I'm a lesbian. And I'm like, great. You, you tried it. You never know. Uh, and then when, you know, she said to me um, six months ago, and we've had a gender identity conversation multiple times over the years because Jordan has always presented fairly masculine um, traditionally. Um, mm -hmm. and we had the conversation a multiple, multiple of times and I wanted to, you know, Jordan to feel comfortable with having that conversation with me. So I often initiated it when it came to buying new clothes. And at some point as Jordan developed, didn't like her breasts. And so I bought binders or there's trans tape you can use. And I, so I've been really supportive when Jordan said six or seven months ago that they wanted to transition. I wanted to like, just test it, you know, because I knew Jordan's last girlfriend was probably a bit of a, an influence in that. And Jordan said, no, I just think I've been like, um, you know, denying it for many years. 
And so I just said, Jordan, I'm, I'm fully supportive. And so, you know, I use they, them, or he, he, him pronouns. And it's funny because there was an email exchange that Jordan and I were on um, with someone that Jordan had add me, added me onto. And then Jordan called me the other night and said, mom, I just want to say thank you. I noticed you use the right pronouns. And so something like that is incredibly meaningful. But I've had to ask Jordan for permission to make mistakes sometimes. I said, you know, you were my daughter for 18 years. And there's still an element of me mourning, I'll say, the, the loss of the, the thinking around having a daughter, because I actually love the fact that I had one of each. And so now to say that I have two sons is just something I'll need to adjust to. And it doesn't mean that I am not supportive of Jordan's decision. It just means it's a process for me to go through um, in terms of making that change in transition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's so interesting you mentioned that because that's not something that gets talked about often is what's the parent's experience through all of this, right? And to your point, having a daughter and and coming to terms and accepting the fact that, you know, your daughter wants to transition to, to be a son now, there is that aspect of perhaps loss, as you mentioned, even though you're supportive, how were you able to come to terms with it? Um, it's still hard sometimes. I'll be completely transparent. You know, there's, I, I have, you know, pictures of kids on, on the phone going back. I, you know, every couple of years we'd go and get these family shots and like, and I look at, you know, the, you know, the, the three of us. And then when I remarried, you know, and then my husband came into the picture, um, you know, seeing that and I'm like, oh, you know, her nickname is beauty girl. I know my cur curly hair, um, but except she's half Portuguese. So she's you know, got a di different complexion. Uh, and, but these big, big curls, I'm like beauty girl. So I had to say like, Jordan, can I, can I, can I at least say beauty? And so Jordan's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so that's fine. So it's hard sometimes just as I think about what was, but yet at the same time, I have this amazing, great human who's comfortable in stepping into um, their real selves, but it's still mm -hmm. a journey because I, I'm actually, although I've been really supportive with for many, many years with clothing. And as I said, I've bought, you know, binders and trans tape and things like that uh, to support. I actually, I still think that the physical body and mind is still developing. So I'm really encouraging Jordan to wait to do anything much more physical and permanent um, until uh, generally they say around 25 is when, you know, that full development start um, stops. Um, and Jordan's also bipolar. So there's just added, you know, elements in there. So I'm really, really mindful um, of it. And, um, you know, and again, I've been around the, in the queer community. So I think for, for a very, very long, 30 something years now. So it's actually, you know, much easier for me. I've had exposure to it, but it's also part of why I'm, I'm happy you're asking me questions because for, you know, parents who don't have this kind of exposure, like to know that you can be supportive and still have these other emotions, like that it's, it, they can co right. you know, coexist together and um, you'll evolve and change and get, you know, gain a different kind of comfort, you know, as time goes on. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing is it's, it's complex, right? Because there's so many emotions involved and for someone like myself and, and I'm perhaps speaking for other people too, it's, it's hard because, you know, it's something we don't understand. And, and the way I look at things is, we don't have the answers, right? So it's easy to either criticize, be skeptical and and point fingers without fully understanding what the real picture is. And, you know, I'm 
a firm believer that the truth is somewhere in the middle and we're all trying to figure it out, right? But, you know, you, you mentioned also the idea of kind of being considerate of being supportive, but then at the same time being mindful of some of those physical changes. And as you mentioned, 25 is probably that age. So I know you mentioned to me previously that hormone blockers was one thing that you weren't perhaps supportive of. And based on what I've heard, and again, my information I'm getting typically is from the media. So I'm also very cognizant of that too. There is a lot of pressure around hormone blockers too, right? And especially if uh, uh, kids are coming out and saying, this is how they feel, or this is the, the, the path they want to choose. Have you felt that pressure? And is it true? Like, is that really there? And because uh, the other thing I hear is often parents are, if they're not as supportive as someone like yourself, they're also getting berated for not being supportive. And, and you know, the, the world child, child abuse, the, those terms start coming up. What are your thoughts around all that? I know I've thrown in a lot here, but. Yeah, it's, um, it's tough. And some of it I, actually, I think also depends on where you live, you know, so I, yeah. I'm a proud Canadian who lives in the US. I moved to Florida from New York two years ago. And, you know, it's a whole other world down here in Florida. Now I live in Miami, yeah. which is a separate kind of ecosystem that's slightly different than the rest of Florida, but we still have the same governor. And yeah. so, you know, for me, you know, I think we need to do what is right, you know, for, I'll say our children in this, in, in this case, but, you know, family and friends and those that were supporting and, and, and in supporting comes some challenge. I do think, I think you can be supportive and challenge some of these things. You know, Jordan was, ha, had a girlfriend here who really liked, and this is before Jordan made the decision tra to transition. So really liked her to be much more masculine and she started like exceptionally binding. And so when Jordan made it, you know, told me shortly afterwards, you know, Hey mom, I think I'm going to transition. I'm, I'm challenging it because one, I've had probably three, four, five conversations in, over the last many years that were completely contrary to that. And I'm now seeing it driven being based upon this latest girlfriend who likes something um, very specific. And Jordan hasn't always um, been very good at taking their bipolar medication. So I, I am in a situation where I'm like, there's a multitude of factors. So I'm challenging Jordan, even though I'm exceptionally supportive. And then I'm also going to try and do the research and bring this to Jordan to make some decisions. So Jordan wants to proceed with testosterone. And though, so wisely, the Jordan's actually now back in, in, in Canada, taking a year off before university, living with their older brother and said to me, you know, I'm starting to, you know, see a doctor and we're talking about testosterone and they're talking about like freezing my eggs. And I'm like, well, Jordan, this is part of the reason why I encourage to wait because at 18, you're not soon to be 19. I ho hopefully you're not thinking about children just yet, but Jordan's exceptionally good with children. And I'm like, so maybe you will want it. So here's where, you know, having the conversations and trying to find this balance between being supportive, but understanding the science to just talk about and, and talking through longer term um, Im implications or impact of some of these mm -hmm. sure that someone's completely informed uh, and, and so again, challenging and bring science to the table doesn't mean that we're not not supportive. Right. And then what I would say is you talk about just, you know, sort of the, the conversation. I talk about science because, as you said, there's lots in the media uh, and there are certain places here in the U.S. where, you know, parents can be 
um, you know, charged for like child abuse for supporting their, you know, minority age children with some of, you know, some of the support, et cetera, which just, I think is ridiculous. I've got some friends who have, you know, kids in less than 10 years old who, you know, boys who like to wear girls clothing. Well, okay, what's wrong with that? Like we're going to support it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, it, it's a mess. All I can say is I think, you know, we need to do the best we can to support um, our children, our family, our friends, and continue to advocate for human rights, period. Mm-hmm. Those who make mm-hmm. those yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's really it, right? It's trying to figure, it's, it's such a complicated path and it's trying to figure out how you can be supportive. But to your point, also, feeling compelled and and having that agency to challenge because often you know kids are a little bit more susceptible to to what they see or what they hear and it's being able to have those informed conversations and not shying away from those so so that's i mean an important thing that you've pointed out now there's that other thing again coming back to uh, i mean obviously in jordan's case she's 19 or going on 19 but when it when it comes to younger children, they are impressionable. There is that aspect of from a psychological perspective where I mean, I look back at my childhood, I was impressionable. There was times where I wanted to fit in and there were times where I was seeking attention. Now, do you feel in these instances that could be the case as well? And what are your thoughts around that? Uh I I absolutely think it's the case. I mean, we we all want to, you know, be liked, to be fit in, to fit in. I I think of the things that I did, you know, in my my teens for that very same reason. And so what I see now is um, some people's lived experience um, is uh, it, I'm going to say potentially creating some undue pressure. I think of, you know, Jordan and I. Um, good Canadian girls play hockey. Actually, so too does my my older son. And I remember playing, like we played hockey together and Jordan was an amazing goalie, played in my women's league. And we played with um, a woman who decided to make the transition as well. And who's now living as a trans man who's been super supportive for Jordan. But I think their own experience of now being a 40 something year old trans man who wasn't supported by their Jewish, more religious family as queer, let alone now um, trans, is actually being a little bit pushed to Jordan, who probably feels a little bit more pressure to do more. And so, you know, it's like that person's lived experience and lack of support is not the same as Jordan's. So let's be really mindful of that. And that's to an extreme. But even I think uh, I've always encouraged Jordan to be a part of, like when we first relocated from New York to, um, to Florida, you know, at Jordan School, get involved in the, and actually we we did have here in Mighty Beach, there's a gay straight alliance at the high school and like get involved and be with other queer people. And so sometimes that's that sense and desire of belonging and then the social media pressures and what you see out there, I think can um, definitely create pressure um, and move people towards a certain path or potentially create stigma on the opposite end of that. And so that's where I think it takes a village, you know, to, you know, create some balance in the dialogue, again, from a a place of fact, of science, but also the recognition of the feelings and the emotions of the individuals as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and I mean, with science, I, I mean, there's a lot of arguments on the other side that talk about biology, right? And biologically, men are men, women are women, you know, that's kind of the argument you see. Um, 
what do you have to say about that? Um, well, there's, there's gender and there's gender identity and there is sexuality. Like there's all of these different elements. And, and so, um, I understand for medical purposes, we need a, you know, gender assigned at birth. If you're in an accident and you, you know, get to the hospital and, you know, those that working on, you need to have, you know, that data point, but otherwise what, what does it matter around someone's gender identity, how they, you know, what clothes they choose to wear, what pronouns they choose, et cetera. Again, I think if we're, you know, much more open to, you know, engaging with other humans of which we all are, uh, I, I tend to, you know, look less upon that and just, you know, be much more supportive of people's feelings um, or choice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, again, I'm just kind of looking at the other side of the argument. And I think the problem, at least what people seem to have or, or identify is it's it's when with that biological aspect, with the hormone blockers or some of the surgeries and, and then there's now, you know, there's been reports of people who went through the surgeries and are having complications and want to transition back. But obviously, that's not easy because you've made all these physical changes. When you hear about stuff like that, and again, you know, the media can spin it however they want it, right? Um, they could maybe just focus on the things that have gone bad and not focus on the, the other side of it. But when you hear stuff like that, as a parent, what goes through your mind? Well, uh, I, well, what goes through my mind is, again, I think as parents, we need to be fully supportive of our children's choices to a certain extent. And so I use the example of, you know, a boy that wants to, to wear a dress, then let him, or in my case, Jordan decided to cut all of her hair off and wear super short. There's time she's had buzz, buzz cuts. Uh, you know, she loved getting her brother's hand-me-down clothes. And so, so, so what? It's hair and clothing. And so that's mm -hmm. where I will encourage parents to be fully, fully supportive, one. But two, having a conversation. There's times where I've had to have a conversation with Jordan about saying, you know, beauty, like, I love that you are like such an individual and you know what you want. I just want you to understand the implications of that, particularly when she was like a preteen, pre, you know, and early teen when kids are vicious. So mm -hmm. just understand how, what that's going to look like when you show up, you know, as the, you know, as the new kid at school, for example, right. So having that conversation, but where for me, I'll say I draw the line, but is I'm, I'm not supportive of like the, the me medical intervention at that point, because I think now there's a big difference. Actually, you know, my good friends with one of my like former neighbors and I swear their son, their uh, middle son, you know, at two or three years old, we were all pretty sure he was queer already. Um, like no doubt about it. And he likes wearing, you know, clothes. He's now actually, he's, I'm not gonna, he's now on, you know, TV, TV and a Disney and like doing like this, everything about him is like, you know, very flamboyant. And they're so supportive. Um, and yeah, probably wouldn't, I have no indication of this. I probably wouldn't be shocked if at some point, you know, he made, said he wanted to transition. Um, but much like with Jordan, like I, I'm not supportive of doing that until like much later. I think of Jordan's decision at 
18 years old. And again, Mm -hmm. mine has some mental health issues so that there's just an added dynamic in it. But just I think of what I wanted when I was, you know, 18 or 20 years old, although I I believe I was a lot more mature than than my own young one at this point by circumstance, um, was still very drastically different than what I wanted five or 10 years later. So that's where I'm like, do everything we can to support. uh, But I would encourage significant amount of counseling and delay on medical treatment um, until they're older. I, because I still don't think there's enough studies. And so we talk, I, I say data and science. I still don't think there's enough out there to talk about what happens when those decide, start with medical interventions at a much earlier age. Like, how does that impact them long term? We don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's the biggest piece that I find is missing in the data, too. And I, I'm glad that you bring that up because we don't know. Right. And I mean, the counter argument is. The, the mental health issues of of not being able to transition can be severe and often leads to suicide. But to your point, we also don't know what happens with going for a full transition. So, and, and like I said, we're all trying to figure this out uh, and don't have all the answers yet. And part of the other thing I, I wonder often, and I've done a podcast episode on the education system, but, you know, our children are, often spending more time in school and with teachers. And, you know, when I kind of look at that, it does concern me a little bit in the sense that do our teachers equipped to be able to handle these situations? And, um, you know, and, and I'm not saying, like, I'm not blaming teachers. I'm just looking at it that they're often put in a difficult position to be able to navigate these situations one way or the other, whether it's being supportive or not being supportive, but what are your thoughts around that? And what can the school systems do to be better equipped and, and perhaps even be more educated and being able to guide students and deal with these situations? I think we ask a lot of our teachers. Um, and I do think there's, there's more that we can do to educate the teachers around how to identify, um, you know, those, they're, they're kids that are facing a multitude of things, you know, whether they're, it's suspe- suspected abuse in the home or, you know, food insecurity or sexuality or all of these things. So, I, you know, it's, I think there's some education to help with the identification of, but I think we wrongfully put too much on the teachers to expect that they're also going to be their counselors and the educators on those specific things other than the subjects for which they're, you know, um, trained to be teaching. And so it's how do they identify it and where do they go to find the resources? That's what I'd ask of the teachers and get them to focus on being really supportive of all the kids that they have in their classroom and being really great educators. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, again, it's one of those things that even with the research, it's fairly limited, right? And we don't have all the answers. So I think it's trying to work together and doing the best we can. Um, and, and to your point, the parents need to be able to support as well because they need to look out for the best interest of their children. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's like I said, it's there's so much complexity around this. And to your point earlier, lots of emotions involved. And uh, it's, it's something we all have to figure out. But I guess as a parent, what else can you share 
and or or just a member of society that you feel that would be of value to people listening in in these situations i would ask you know people to have compassion uh and attempt to have understanding um and and maybe the understanding is a challenge for those who again have like myself who haven't been part of the lgbt community and therefore have great exposure but you know that this notion of always trying to um you know listen to understand and then with that comes the compassion and then the support i think even at some point without completely understanding you know in this case someone who might want to tra- you know transition or even someone's sexuality that's different from yours um, to create the safe environment for people to feel comfortable sharing um, and either asking for help or much like the question you just asked me around teachers, um, trying to hear that there's a need and help support find the right avenue um, and support for those individuals where you might not be able to lend it beyond the sort of the emotional support. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think part of the challenge I see is people are so stuck on their views and opinions that they're not willing to listen. And, um, and, and to your point, what's missing is we're not listening to understand, we're listening to respond. Or, or in most cases, we already have a response in mind, and we're just ready to shout that out. And um, there's not a lot of dialogue going on. And, you know, part of the reason why I've wanted to have this conversation with you was to have this dialogue and to understand your perspective because my perspective is very limited uh i'm not in your shoes i haven't experienced what you've experienced so i can't really comment on a lot of those things but my hope is by having conversations like this we can all understand each other a little bit better i love it thank you thank you for having the conversation Yeah, no, I, and Victoria, is there anything else you would like to add? Uh, I know you, you're doing a lot of work even in, in your position around, you know, being an executive and bringing light to some of the changes that need to happen in that space. Is, are there any things you could share in that space that you would like to, or like the listeners to know about? Yeah, I, I think every, the, the listeners have probably heard a ton about diversity, equity, and inclusion in their workplaces and in their communities. I, I do spend a lot of time with C-suite executives and when I have the opportunity to either coach them and work with their teams on this to say like there's there's no trade-off in the workplace or our communities for having diverse workplaces and communities for the kind of performance and outcomes at all. In fact, there is data that shows um, that there's things like greater innovation, um, higher employee engagement, which drives in the performance of the business. So not as it just a good thing to do, you know, from a human standpoint um, and in our business, it actually drives business results. And so rather than looking at it as kind of this tick in the box, recognize, you know, for more mature leaders and companies do that it's a responsible way to lead that ultimately is, you know, great for our communities. And, um, and going back to that comment around listening, I think it's this, the notion of lived experience, we've, we've talked a lot about sexuality and gender identity here, but the reality is there's so much intersectionality. Me as a white queer woman um, born in Canada, living in the US, uh, you know, I still have privilege. 
um, you know, being white and born in North America. So recognizing this, but I have a very different lived experience and those are incredibly rich to dialogue versus others who've had the opportunity to live and work abroad and have, you know, very different, you know, racial or religious backgrounds. And so I just think, um, you know, being open and having the conversation and understanding more about people's experience uh, is just so incredibly, you know, rich for our lives, for our businesses and for our communities. Yeah, absolutely. And and you touched on the whole notion of taking the box, which is kind of my concern with how things are being managed. Uh, and I see there's a lot of downside to it because we're losing sight of the actual goal. We're more focused on the kind of the optics around it. So what are some things people can do, whether it's in the leadership space or just in general around DEI? Because I think with taking the box, we're losing sight of what really needs to be the impact. And I don't know if you share that same sentiment, but uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts around how can we mitigate that and be more mindful of what the actual goal is here? You use the word that um, I was going to speak on, which is impact. And so we need to be measuring very different things and the impact of, of the diverse workforces. And so there's this my, myopic view of DEI as it relates to the diversity mix within the organization. And, and so there's all this focus on the talent acquisition on the front end, and then all of the other measurements, and quite honestly, whether it's policies, procedures, language actions, behaviors, that miss are missing in the middle. And so people run out the back door as fast as we might be able to bring them in the front. And that's because we haven't measured a number of other things. So, you know, around what's the advancement of, you know, the diverse talent that we've brought in? Um, is there pay equity within, you know, the various career levels for our diverse talent? Are, are we creating opportunity for them? Are we investing in their potential? Are we as leaders speaking openly and creating safe environments where people feel like they belong. Um, and so, and then measuring that. And so through employee engagement surveys, you can measure that through things like retention and career progression and a multitude of things. And so there's no silver bullet, you know, to, to doing this. It's a, like, you need to be what I say, strategically intentional. And so building strategies over how you're going to not only bring in the diverse talent, retain that talent, ensure that they're satisfied or engaged in producing within the business, um, and then continuing to advance them. I mean, I like, I, I'm happy to see that the needle has moved, but so slowly, you know, we only just hit double digits of female CEOs in the Fortune 500. There's 53, but there's only six black um, CEOs. Like that is very, very far from the actual representation, you know, of the you know world that we're living in. Um, yeah. So we need to do more. Absolutely. And do you feel with that approach, it takes away from meritocracy or, or we're able to still maintain merit based, a merit based approach? I absolutely think we can. I think that we need to look at it with a, a different lens so that the future of work now has, has evolved and changed. And so it's much more about discrete skills versus just you know broad bucketed um, job titles. Uh, and so if we look at a matrix between skills and diversity 
and performance within those skills for today. But the other lens is that the shelf life of skills is decreasing rapidly, like under two years, particularly when we talk about like digital technologies. And so therefore, some of the more human skills around agility and you know ability to pivot, ability to lead, um, innovation and problem solving, um, not all of those can be measured in the same, same way, right? We're talking For qualitative sure. versus quantitative, but then we also need to measure potential propensity to learn. And so you can have performance in those discrete skills, but also start to look at and create um, greater opportunity for those that have potential. And again, the propensity to learn. And that's where intentionality comes in. But you're also, someone's potential is based upon their performance. So you can have both, but again, you need to start to measure and look at performance systems differently than we have been traditionally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, lots of work to be done by the sounds of it and we're not even close. So I appreciate that. And I mean, it sounds like, you know, instead of going off on a complete tangent, it sounds like we might have to do another episode because this is another area I'm fascinated by it for many reasons, being in the workforce myself, but also seeing a lot of the shift happening over the course of my career. But to your point, it the needle has moved, but it's moving slowly. So I'm very much interested in what we can do collectively to improve that or, or what are some things we can do differently. But uh, thank you again for coming on here and having this conversation with me. Uh, I do give guests an opportunity to share some of the ways listeners can get a hold of them, whether it's online or social media. I'll give you that opportunity as well if you'd like to share. If not, that's okay too. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd love it. So I have an easy way for people to find me, which is just my personal website, which is victoria-peltier.com. And they can choose to link out to whatever social media platform they want to engage with me on from there. Perfect. I will put that in the show notes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for checking out this episode with Victoria. As always, please leave a review or a comments in the comment section. I love hearing from you. Or please subscribe to the podcast if you have not done so. That is the best way to support this podcast. Thank you, and until next week.